So this morning, we have been focusing on the work of CAP, um, who are Christians Against Poverty. Uh, and they, they do um, a huge amount of very worthwhile work reaching people who are struggling in debt and, and tackling this great problem of poverty. But they're not simply um, a charity against poverty. They're Christians against poverty. It's in the name. And we go into the homes of, of people who perhaps have little or no idea what that word means. And if we were to go out on the streets of Bankery or Aberdeen, and we were to ask folks, what does it mean to be Christian? I'm sure we would get various responses. Um, we might have people assuming that what makes Christians against poverty is that they are against poverty. It's this, this action against poverty that makes them Christian. And that is something that we, we kind of see assumed, that it's your charitable works, it's what you do, it's how you behave towards other people, that's, that's what makes you Christian. And the question might arise as we go into people's houses, well, what makes us Christian? And it's a good question to ask. And it's a question that has been asked throughout the ages, in fact. And we see here in Acts 15 that it is the question that is at the heart of this passage. What makes us Christian? So we, we come to Acts chapter 15 this morning. And as I said, it's been a little while since we've been in the book of Acts. So it's maybe worth just doing a little bit of a refresh as to how we got here. Acts is the, the history book of the, the early church, its growth and its work um, from when Christ died, came back to life, and ascended into heaven, he gave his church a commission, and he gave them a gift. He gave them a commission to go into the world and to make disciples, and he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit to embolden them and empower them and enable them to, to speak the word of the gospel um, in often hostile territory. And they were told to go into Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as we progress through the book of Acts, that's what we see the church doing, going out, proclaiming the message of salvation to anybody who will listen to them. And we see the church expanding and growing into these further regions of the world. And as they go, they, they meet a, a mixed reception. There are some who believe and are saved and are added to the church, and there are others who reject the truth and are hostile to it. And in Acts 13 and 14, we see Paul and Barnabas and others go out on the first overseas mission trip of the church. Um, the, the, the message of the gospel wasn't to remain in Jerusalem and go just to the Jews. It was to go out into the nations, to these non-Jewish nations, to the Gentiles, where they would also have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. And fruit comes of that mission. There are people who are saved, many in fact, and Paul and Barnabas, um, and Paul especially, we see, is facing very severe opposition towards the end of that mission, where he's nearly stoned to death. And then after this, this overseas mission trip, they land back in Antioch, and it's in Antioch that we come to in the start of chapter 15. And here in Antioch, with this this church that is growing, not just in number, but also in diversity, there is a dispute that comes up. We have this mixed Jewish Gentile church in 
in Antioch. And some men we see in in verse 1 in chapter 15 state that unless you become a Jew, surely you can't be saved. It's okay to preach to these Gentiles and to include them in the church, but they must become Jewish, really, before they can be saved. And that's what's um, said in verse 1 here, that unless they are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there is this assumption that, that you must first be obedient to all of the, the laws of Moses that the Jews had grown up with. If you are not obedient to these laws, then, then what are you adding to your salvation? Nothing. And, and if you're not doing something well, then you can't surely be saved. You can't be Christian. Well, Paul and Barnabas, we see, immediately respond against this anti-gospel message. They respond against it, and they, they make tracks for Jerusalem, where there was going to be a great meeting, a council of the apostles and the elders of the church to discuss this very pressing question of what makes us Christian. And so they travel down from Antioch through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they tell the churches on their way all of the work that God had been doing, saving these Gentiles. And the church rejoiced. But then we see when they get down to to Jerusalem, the, the issue that had arisen in Antioch isn't just a local issue. It's a big church-wide issue because there's men in Jerusalem, it says, believing Pharisees, believers who were from the, the, the people of the Pharisees came in amongst them and they said that it's necessary for us to circumcise these Gentiles and, and make them keep the law of Moses in order for them to be saved. This same issue that was in Antioch is also in Jerusalem and it's a massive issue that would tear the church apart and would actually undermine the gospel if it wasn't addressed. And so we see that there is this council that is gathered. But this this verse five, I think actually is is quite interesting, the way that we see these these men who who are stirring up trouble introduced to us. They're described as believers and also Pharisees. It's, it's almost as if they have this kind of, this split identity, this, this divided trust, if you like. They, they are believers. They've heard the gospel. They've heard that Jesus died and was rose again and that he lives for them and that he came to save them. And yet they have all of this baggage from being Pharisees. Pharisees were those who, who thought that everybody must keep every aspect of the law. And they, they, were, they were very, very strict in adding their own customs even onto laws that were already given by God. And they were very strict in persecuting those who didn't follow their traditions and their rules. They'd grown up with this. It was deeply ingrained in them that in order to be saved, they needed to do something to be right with God. And that habit is hard to shake. So these Pharisees who have this tradition of thinking they need to do something to make themselves right with God, when they come to the gospel, they believe, but, but they are struggling to shake off this Pharisaical identity, it seems. And they're, they're also imposing their religious rule-keeping onto these Gentile believers who don't have this same background. So we see in, in verse 6 through 20 that there's this council meeting that they come to discuss this question of 
What makes us Christian? So in verse 6, there's a council convened. Men from um, Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders. We see Paul and Barnabas. We see Peter. We see James. And there's, there's three speeches that are kind of outlined for us here. First, we see Peter, and he stands up. And he says to the, the, the council, look, we've heard how God sent me, in fact, to the Gentiles. And he refers back to um, chapter 10 of Acts, if you wanted to flick back there. You'll see how Peter was given a very clear vision that he was to go to the Gentiles and he was to preach the gospel. And he says, I did that. And they were saved. And there was evidence that they were saved. He says, they were made right with God through faith. And he says that God gave to the Gentiles the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, we read of that happening in, in chapter 10. And he says, because of this, we see God makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He says that actually God cleanses their hearts by faith. And his conclusion from this mission that he has been sent on to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and how he saw that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, how he saw that God cleansed their heart by faith, we see his conclusion in, in verse 10 and 11 of this chapter, which is really the theological center of this chapter. You know, if we're to ask the question, what makes us Christian? Well, Peter says here in verse, verse 10 and 11, now, Therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This law, why are you putting it on these Gentile converts? It couldn't save us. It's not going to save them, he says. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's the center of Peter's argument and this is what makes us Christian. And then Peter sits down, and we see that Paul and Barnabas, they stand up, and they, they reiterate essentially what, what Peter has been saying, that yes, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, and they have been saved, and they tell of all of the wonders and signs that God has done among this foreign people, this, this nation that were not Israelites. God has gone to them, and he has worked wonders and converted them. And then we see James, he stands up in verse 13, and he kind of brings this counsel to a conclusion. And he, he says that what Simon Peter, or if you're, you're ESV, it might say Simeon, um, which is, he's, he's referring to Simon Peter, who just spoke. He said, what Simon said about the gospel going to Gentiles, about them being saved by faith, about God cleansing their hearts by faith, he says, it's true, and the Old Testament prophets tell us it's true. He says that, you know, if you read your Old Testament, we can see that the, the mission of God was never just to go to a small group, one nation, and excluding the rest of the world. In fact, he says, quoting um, there in, in verses 16 and 17, um, quoting Amos the prophet, that actually this, this message of salvation, after... I rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, saying, and that's referring to, to Christ. Christ, after he died and came back to life, said, I will rebuild it, I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. 
James says that God was calling a people to him from all nations. And actually, if we go back even as far as the promise that was given to Abraham, the promise was that through his seed, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And so James says, of course the Gentiles are believers. Of course they are saved. And they're saved not because of adherence to these Mosaic laws. They are saved in the same way that anybody is saved. They're saved by faith. So we see that this, the reach of the gospel here goes to all the ends of the earth. So we have a great diversity in the church, people from all nations, all cultures, all backgrounds. But how can such a diverse church be united? How can such a multicultural, transnational, culture, transnational church be united? They've got so many differences. And even as we look around the room this morning, we have a lot of differences. And as we look at the church globally, we have so many differences. But what is it that unites us? Well, this chapter here gets us to see that it is what makes us a Christian that unites us. It is faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ that unites us. It's not our, our cultural heritage, not our racial background, not our, our, our social backgrounds. None of these things unite us. It is faith in Christ alone. And so the, um, the, the council comes to the conclusion in verse 19, don't place these Mosaic laws onto these Gentile believers and say that they need to do these in order to be saved. This is an error of thinking. And in saying this, he corrects, or the, James and the council correct the thinking of these Pharisees who are unsettling the minds of the Gentiles. He says, you don't need to add anything onto your faith in order to be saved. No circumcision, no Mosaic law will save you. And it's in this context that actually we get through to verse 20. And having said that you don't need to do anything other than have faith to be saved, we might be surprised to see what what James and the council then say to the Gentiles. They say four things that they should not do. They should, they should abstain from sexual immorality, food sacrificed to idols, blood, and the meat of strangled animals. It seems like a, a strange thing, perhaps, to say. And, and some conclude that um, these are concessions. These are a compromise position to come to, to say to the Gentiles, look, you're, you're in a predominantly Jewish world, adopt some Jewish culture, um, adopt their food laws so that you can all enjoy a meal together. And there might be some truth in that, that actually there, there is benefit in them all observing similar food laws so that they can, they can enjoy a meal together and enjoy peace and unity as, as brothers. But I think there's actually there's something even deeper here. Because, well, sexual immorality stands out as, as kind of different in that list. And what, what is it that unites these, these four things, sexual immorality and these, these food laws that we see? These, the food sacrificed to idols, blood, and strangled animals. Well, these things taken together are hallmarks of pagan religion. The Gentiles 
They didn't have a background of believing that they needed to be circumcised and follow Mosaic law in order to be right with God. But they did have a background where they believed, actually, they had, a, had to do some things to, to curry favor with their gods. And sexual immorality, temple prostitution, and food sacrificed to idols, blood and strangled animals, these are hallmarks of pagan religion. And I, I am more and more convinced as I read this passage this week that that the intention of telling the Gentiles to abstain from these things is to correct against or to guard against the same error, actually, that the Pharisees were falling into, that they might themselves trust in something other than faith in Christ alone for salvation, that they themselves could have fallen back into their pagan religion, their rituals and their superstitions to make themselves right with God. They were equally in danger of adding something onto faith. And we all are, aren't we? It's our own natural instinct. We want to do something. We want to do something to earn favor with God. But we see here very clearly from the instructions that actually it is faith alone that makes us right with God. It is faith alone in the the sacrifice of Christ for us on our behalf to make us right with God. There is this danger of having a split identity, of trying to, to be believers but also cling on to something else to give us some hope for salvation, having the, almost this split identity. Um, this is a, a, maybe a flippant illustration, but there, in, in Northern Ireland, there's this, this joke of um, an, an Indian family moved to a street in Belfast, and the neighbors, of course, ask, are they Protestant or are they Catholic? And somebody who, who knows them says, well, they're, they're Hindu. Yeah, yeah, but are they, are they Protestant Hindus or are they Catholic Hindus? And of course, it's nonsense, isn't it? You can't be both. You can't be both. And so the council here says, you cannot be both saying that you are saved by faith and also saying you must be circumcised. You cannot be saying you are saved by faith and also clinging to your pagan rituals. You must trust in Christ alone. That is what makes us Christian. And it is this belief that actually encompasses the whole global church. This is what makes us Christian. It is faith alone, in Christ alone, that makes us Christian. And this reaches beyond cultural boundaries and barriers. This reaches beyond social, economic boundaries and barriers. And this belief, this knowledge, actually is what motivates the work of so many Christian charities, including CAP, to go into all of the world, to go into homes of people with whom we seem to have nothing in common and know that God is calling them to himself. Know that God is calling people from all nations, all backgrounds, that there is no barriers to becoming a Christian. All that we need to do is have faith in Christ and to give up believing in these other things that we so easily trust in to make ourselves right with God. So there's some questions for us to consider as a church, as individuals, 
things that, that are addressed within this chapter. Maybe they're worth having a chat after the service. But what kind of barriers do, do we put in people's path for becoming Christian? Do we give the impression that in order to be a Christian, you have to have your life sorted out? You have to have certain clothes, dress the right way, speak the right way? Do you have to give a certain amount of money to the church? Perhaps we don't say these things explicitly, but do we imply them by the way that we live? Do we, by our words, our actions, give the impression that anything is needed to be done in addition to faith in Jesus for salvation? And perhaps we need to examine ourselves to see if there's anything of this in us and, and change it. And are we ourselves falling into the wrong belief that, that what we do in any way contributes to our salvation? Our church attendance, prayerfulness, giving? Or do we sometimes doubt that we are saved because we fail to do these things? And we can very easily fall into the trap of thinking we need to keep God on side by doing certain things. When in reality, what we need to do is to cling to Christ, declare our absolute need of Him, our own sinfulness and inability to do anything to make ourselves right with God. This is what makes us Christian, not action against poverty, not charity work, worthy and good as they are. It is Christ alone who makes us Christian. He saves us and frees us to live as Christians, which includes action against poverty and charity work. It is this knowledge that motivates, as I said, the work of CAP. It spurs them on in their work against poverty, to reach into all the world, into all cultures, into homes of all people, knowing that God is calling people out of, out of debt, but more than just financial debt. God is calling us out of a debt that we could never repay, a debt that is caused by our sin against Him. There is a, a debt that we could not dig ourselves out of, and it is that debt that God Himself settles for us at the cross. It is here where Christ became poor so that we might be clothed in His riches. By faith in Him, we can be made rich, we can be made free, and we can be saved. And there is nothing that we can do to add to the salvation that He has won for us, except to rejoice and to, to trust in Him and to cling to Him. And this is the response of, of the Gentile church when they receive this letter that is drafted up and it is, it is read out and it is taught about. They see this as good news to, to flee from pagan religion, to flee from Jewish observance of the law to make yourself right and cling only to Christ. Thank you for joining with us this morning. You can stay standing as we'll um, say the words of the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.